sometimes people ask me, you know, are you nervous? Are you scared getting up there and, and preaching? And yeah, there's a couple of things I'm scared of. The first one is, is that obviously I'd preach something that isn't true, something that doesn't edify the body of Christ. But sometimes a close second is that the sound guy is feeling like he's being a little bit of a stinker. He might turn my mic on while I'm singing, and that terrifies me too. So I didn't hear myself. Thanks, Mike. So, um, so yeah, I'm excited to be here tonight to be able to share with, what, share with you what the Lord has put on my heart. Um, but before we do that, can we pray together, please? Father, thanks for bringing us together here tonight. Father, please prepare our hearts, mine as the one who has been charged with preaching the very words of God, and for those listening, that they would um, be sensitive to the leading of your Spirit along with me, that we might together grow closer to you um, through the message that you have given us through your word. Please limit distractions. Father, please keep me from saying anything that does not Line up with your word. It does not build up the saints. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. So I just want to let you know real quickly where we're going tonight. I know some of you like to know right off the bat. So what we're going to do is, um, first, I'm going to build a foundation, the foundation for this gospel-shaped mercy. And then we're going to do a quick review of where we've been um, in the last two sermons Um, the last three sessions in the curriculum. And then we're going to watch the video um, that that goes along with this session. And then I'll get up and I'll do a little bit more preaching. And then you can go watch the divisional championship game. I know you're all wanting to go. So when you see me get up for the last time, you've got about 15 minutes and then I'm done. So just can work with that. Okay, so... The foundation. What is the foundation for this series? Here's the book that we're all teaching out of. It's called Gospel-Shaped Mercy. And I'm kind of a words guy. I like to think about what words mean, what they do. Um, So we're talking about mercy. What is mercy? We've seen that it has to do with shalom, with peace. We've seen that it has to do with justice. We've seen that it has to do with love. Um, But there's something that's shaping that mercy, and it's the gospel. And I just want to take a minute to talk about the gospel, to put before us again what this gospel is, because it is the foundation for the mercy that we are to show as, as, as those who follow Christ. It's what the world needs to hear and needs to see from us as those who show mercy. So I'm just going to jump into that right now. Um, actually, what I'm going to read from is just a real quick... Um, or a short summary that Mark Dever put together, and he's got it published on his website. Just a real clear, concise um, explanation of the gospel, and then a very helpful outline of what the gospel is. I've got about 15 copies printed up here. I'd love to give them away and make more copies, um, just so that we as a church can be more and more equipped to share the gospel clearly uh, with those around us, and also to have that that um, content available in our own minds to help shape the way we think the way we act, the way we process things, so that we are gospel-shaped Christians. Um, this should be pretty familiar to you. I've, I think I presented it. This is my third or fourth time now. Um, John Leaf presented it in great detail. I think it was the last series in the gospel-shaped series. And then Pastor Mike um, briefly referred to it in his sermon when he just kind of shared about what he learned at the, the music conference with the guys. I think it was Mike Bo- Matt Boswell that 
I talked about it. So this will be probably the fifth or sixth time you've heard this outline from the pulpit, but it's just so good. I wanted to give it to us again. So what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news about what Christ Jesus has done to reconcile sinners to God. Here's the whole story. The one and only God, who is holy, made us in his image to know him. But we sinned and cut ourselves off from him. In his great love, God sent his son, Jesus, to come as king and rescue his people from their enemies. Most significantly, their own sins. Jesus established his kingdom by acting as both a mediating priest and a priestly sacrifice. He lived a perfect life and died on the cross, thus fulfilling the law himself and taking on himself the punishment for the sins of many. Then he rose again from the dead, showing that God accepted his sacrifice and that God's wrath against us had been exhausted. He now calls us to repent of our sins and trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness. If we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we are born again to a new life, an eternal life with God. Brothers and sisters, that's good news. Is it not? That's good news. That's good news. And a good way to summarize this good news is to biblically unpack these four words. God, man, should start over here. God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. God. God is the creator of all things. He is perfectly holy, worthy of all worship, and will punish sin. Man. All people, though created good, have become sinful by nature From birth, all people are alienated from God, hostile to God, and subject to his wrath. Christ. Jesus Christ, who was both fully God and fully man, lived a sinless life, died on the cross to bear God's wrath in the place of all who would believe in him, and rose again from the grave in order to give his people eternal life. Finally, the response that is required. God calls everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and trust in Christ in order to be saved. That's the gospel in a nutshell, folks. That is what needs to govern our thinking. That's what needs to govern our lives. That's what needs to govern the way we process the news, the way we process the people and the conversations that we have with them. Everything. That is our our source of life, our source of thinking right there. So let's make sure that, that that's ever and always in front of us. And, and really this gospel is the foundation of all that we have looked at this far in the series also. Without the gospel, none of it makes sense. Why would we show mercy had we not been shown mercy? Why would we do that? If we hadn't been shown mercy, why would we show mercy to others? So if we want to be individuals who are merciful... We need to be constantly preaching the gospel to ourselves. If we want to be church members that are merciful together, then we need to be constantly reminding each other of this gospel, something that needs to be part of our conversations together. When any of us have opportunities to teach, when I lead my small group, when I'm up here preaching tonight, or if God gives me the the opportunity in the future, I need to be preaching this gospel. This gospel needs to be continual view of us as the church. 
those of us who are members here have the God-given responsibility of making sure that First Baptist Church consistently and constantly preaches this gospel and no other. If we are not faithful in clearly proclaiming this gospel, then there will be nothing to shape our mercy. Any mercy that we may display will not be shaped by the mercy that God has shown us. It will be a mercy that is driven by a selfish desire to look good, a selfish desire to build ourselves up in the sight of others. And that doesn't give God any glory. So this gospel has to be the driving force behind any mercy that we show. This gospel is the foundation of us as Christians. And let us never tire of hearing of it or neglect to clearly and boldly proclaim it. I want to stop here for a minute um, and just say that I understand that there might be some here tonight who have willfully chosen not to follow Christ. Maybe you think you'll do it later. Maybe you think you're good enough that you don't need Christ. Um, and, and maybe there's folks here that, that think they're Christians, but, but they're not. Maybe you're, you're resting on your good works. Maybe you're resting on your parents' faith. Maybe you're resting on um, what you think you understand about God, and he's, he's God. He saves people. That's what he does, so he'll save me. Um, I want to tell you clearly on the authority of Scripture that none of those things will save you. You can't live a life that's merciful apart from Christ. You can't do any good deeds that will please God. Please take the time to think about this message of the gospel that was just laid before you from Scripture. And, and if you have any questions, talk to me. Talk to the people around you. Oh, man, we, we would love to talk to you more and to introduce you to our merciful Savior, the one who took us from death and gave us life. Okay, so that's the foundation. Now we're moving on to the review Um, Pastor Chad, in the first message, talked to us about shalom, or the biblical idea of shalom or peace. This is the fruitful, joyful, peace-filled flourishing of people that are in right relationship with God, the world, and each other. This was manifested perfectly in the Garden of Eden, but then that peace was shattered by the disobedience of Adam and Eve. Since then, our world has faced the reality of shalom lost, injustice, and a lack of love, mercy, and forgiveness. But, but, we also saw that in his great mercy, God, in Jesus, has done everything needed to restore that shalom to people through the death of Jesus. Now that good news of the gospel is calling people back to right relationship with God. And finally, we saw that God in his perfect time will mercifully restore the shalom that was lost in the Garden of Eden. That shalom that Jesus won on the cross, that's going to be realized someday. We're going to have complete shalom because of Jesus' work. We look forward to that as followers of Jesus Christ. And in the second session, which was talked about both by Pastor Chad and Mike last week, um, we thought about how God's sense of justness and rightness springs from his love of what he created. We saw that working to make the world right, wherever we find unfairness, pleases God who loves justice. And we see that God hates the oppression of the poor, and in particular, hates false religion in his people who do not care for the needs of the poor and oppressed. God hates it 
when those who call themselves Christians don't care about issues of justice and don't work for justice with their lives. And we didn't cover this in a lot of detail, um, so I'd encourage you to, to dig into this a little bit. And if you're looking for a place to start in the scriptures, um, look to Amos chapter 5. There's a lot right there to, to get you started studying about this idea of justice. And the third session um, was just last week. Mike shared with us about love. Um, did a really good job. I'm really pressed for time, so I'm not going to do a lot of review, but it was a great sermon. So go back and listen to it at check. It's on the website, um, whether you need a review of it or, or you weren't here last week. But we saw what true love looks like in the life of a Christian in the church and that that true love comes from God. All right, now we've seen that the foundation of true mercy is the gospel. And we've um, kind of just real quickly reviewed what we've seen so far in this session, in this series up to this point. Um, now we're going to watch a movie by Stephen Um. And I'll be honest, in the last couple times I've preached in these Gospel Shape series, I've been pretty um, selfish with my time. I've picked short movies so that I had more time to preach. This one, I, I just couldn't do it. Um, this this video that we're going to watch is 12 minutes long, so it's cutting into my time to chew your ear off, but it's really good. It's really good. It really is the meat of what we're going to be studying tonight. So I'd encourage you, get your, get your paper out, get your pen out, take notes, because if you don't get some of these things, then what we're going to talk about later just aren't going to make any sense. So, Dan? So in preparation, I was seriously tempted to say, all right, after watching the movie, let's gather together in groups of three to six people and talk about that. There's a lot there for us to process and think about, but that'd be kind of weird on a Sunday evening, so we're not going to do that. Um, but I think it would be helpful. So um, just want to touch on a couple of things that I think are important for us to remember. The first and most important thing, I think, is how, how carefully he explained that the acts of mercy that the sheep did did not make them sheep. The sheep did the acts of mercy because they were sheep. And the only way that those sheep became sheep is that God in his great mercy saved them and took them from goats to sheep. So that's the first thing. The, our acts of mercy will not save us. God saves us and because of his salvation then we do what sheep do. That leads us to the, the second thing I just want to reiterate. The sheep did what was natural to them. The sheep on the right, my left, working on that. The sheep on the right did what sheep do. They were merciful. They were kind. The goats on the left, they didn't show mercy because they were worried about themselves and justifying themselves. It just was natural to them. Um, and so much to say, so little time. Um, we are going in, in this in the study in the book. Um, and there's a there's a Bible study on Acts chapter six, uh, verses one through seven, and we're going to be studying through that. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there already. That's Acts chapter six, verses one through seven. If you don't have a Bible, um, there's little black Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you, and you'll find that on page nine fourteen. That's page nine fourteen. Um, and really the Bible study in this gospel-shaped living curriculum or gospel-shaped mercy curriculum almost looks like a case study, if you will. A case study of a church that found injustice in the midst of it 
and then how they chose to respond in mercy to make justice where there was injustice. And so we're just going to take a quick look at that, just, just skimming over it over 30,000 feet. There's a lot more to hit on, um, but we're just going to kind of hit the big stuff. Um, and and you're going to look at a church that faced issues. And every church on the planet faces issues of injustice, faces issues where mercy, where the mercy of Christ isn't shown. The best of churches deal with those issues in a biblical way and work towards that shalom that um, we heard about in session one. So that's where we're going. So let's read this passage together. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, and men and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So as we read this passage, it seems that there was a system in place in the early church that ensured that the needy widows had food provided to them. Uh, These widows would have been ones that didn't have a protector or a provider to take care of them. They didn't have a family or a system in place that took care of them. So the church took responsibility for these widows. And if we look earlier on in Acts, in chapter 4, verses 32 through 34, is one easy-to-find example. We see that the money for this distribution often came from the disciples selling their possessions and giving giving the proceeds from those sales to the apostles, let them at the apostles' feet um, so that the apostles could care for the needy among them. And this would have been a very normal thing for Jews to do as caring for the poor was a part of their old covenant obligations. And in John chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, we see that even Jesus and the disciples did that. We see Judas carrying the bag um, that had their contributions in it so that when they came across somebody that was poor or in need, they'd have those funds readily available to distribute to those folks. Um, later on in the church, um, in Second Corinthians chapter 9, we see that this practice was continued on um, as the early church became more organized, as it, as it took form, as it actually had elders and, and deacons and things like that, systems in place. They continued on with this mercy ministry. And we see Paul collecting money from a number of churches to give to the Christians that were facing the famine in Judea. So that's a little bit of the background there. But coming back to the passage, um, the problem that we see here is an issue of justice or an issue of injustice. The Greek widows are missing out on the distribution in favor of the Jewish women. And the Hellenists complained to the twelve apostles about that injustice. Now there were two dangers in this situation, two dangers that the church faced in this situation. 
that we're seeing in the text. And the first is division. This injustice was forcing apart the Hebrew and Hellenistic believers from each other. And we see all through the New Testament that this was a common problem the early church faced. Division between these two groups of people and the church constantly had to be guarding against it. Um, So this is a huge issue that threatened to divide this church. The second danger that the church faced was that of distraction. Um, This mercy ministry that the apostles were carrying out threatened to prevent the the apostles from preaching and praying, which was the very ministry that they were tasked by God to do in the church. So the early church was in danger of of having the gospel proclaimed and gospel um, results prayed for. So we see the apostles here facing, the whole church really facing a dilemma. What do we do here? And so what was the solution to the situation? Um, First was an issue of involvement. Who's going to do all this? The apostles realized that if they continued to try to manage the distribution themselves, that one of two things would happen. One, either people would continue to be neglected, injustice would continue on. So that's the first option. Or two, they're going to have to give more time to this, that they would neglect the preaching, the proclamation of the gospel, and the prayer that is needed for gospel results. So those are the two options that, that would happen, if the two things that would happen if the apostles carried on in the way it was going. So what did they do? In verse 2, they see that they took the matter to the whole church. They discussed their proposed solution with them. The second thing, the second part of the solution is delegation. We see that this solution pleased the people, and the people followed their leader's advice and picked out seven men that were full of the spirit and wisdom to do this job. The third part of the solution was focus. This solution and the whole church's involvement allowed the apostles to focus on preaching and prayer and those who were gifted and called to the mercy ministry of the church to lead out were able to focus on that. Um, And that then, that then, then led to the solution. That's just how they dealt with it. They made sure the right people were involved. They... Um, delegated, and they focused on what God had given them to do. And this solution then allowed them to avoid two mistakes that we often see churches today make. Uh, The first mistake is to make evangelism, which is the preaching of the gospel, wait for mercy. Um, Churches will sometimes focus only on mercy ministries. They'll only focus on social justice issues. And they completely fail in their mandate to proclaim the message of the gospel, and to pray for those gospel-shaped results. The second mistake, the other extreme that churches sometimes make, and the one that I personally would be more prone to, um, is to say that mercy has to wait for evangelism. They'll say something like this, and they'll sound really good saying it. They'll say that we're a word-based ministry. The word has to come first. And as we do that, everything else will sort itself out. Now these churches completely fail in their mandate to care for those whom Christ has died. They completely fail in their mandate to show mercy to those for whom Christ died. So those, those are two mistakes that this church and this passage avoided by the solution that they, that they came up with. I want to take just a minute now and look at some things that kind of characterize the men that the congregation chose 
and the apostles commissioned? Did they choose the practical people who would be seen by men to have the natural gifts for the job? Did they go out and look for a member of their conversation in their congregation who had great managerial skills? He was a he was a high level manager at a in a real reputable company. And so I said, you know what, if anybody can manage this, this guy can. Or maybe they picked somebody with really good financial experience and just really understood numbers, understood the market, all those things. So let's let this guy handle the money. He'll handle it well. He'll make sure that there's always enough money for this program. I I don't think they did that. The apostles made it clear that this was a spiritual task, that the men who carried it out must be spirit-filled and wise. And there's three distinctions, I think, or distinctives of the people who were chosen. The first is that they were gifted spiritually. Um, Just take an example of Stephen. You can read more about him in the next chapter, chapter 7. Um, he was a very godly man and a gifted preacher. And, and so that should remind us that we shouldn't overlook people who are gifted in, in the word side of ministry when it comes to practical ministry. We need people who are spirit-filled and wise in the word to lead all ministries of the church. The second distinctive of these men is that they were diverse. We see that the men chosen had Greek names, and one of them wasn't even a Jew by birth. He was a proselyte to Judaism, and then after that he came to follow Jesus Christ. And I think this is a good reminder that we, sh- that we as a church should be wise to not always look to the majority or to the insiders to lead in ministries. Oftentimes the people in the minority have better insights into the problems that we face and are much better equipped by God to wisely solve these types of issues that we face in the church. So let's Let's look outside of people who are just like us to see people who are, would have better insight because they've been in the situations of those who are facing that injustice. And finally, those seven men were commissioned. These men were commissioned for the work by the 12 apostles. Their work was not seen as a non-essential add-on to the church's ministry. It was seen as an essential part of the church's gospel ministry, and these men were recognized and supported by the apostles in front of the whole congregation. So, what's the result of these changes? What's the result of this solution? The result is gospel growth. The apostles were set free to preach the gospel and to pray for the gospel's spread in their area and around the world. You know, for people to come to Christ, they must hear the gospel. And for people to respond to the gospel, they've got to have their eyes opened by God. And an essential part of somebody's eyes being opened by God is his people praying. And the apostles were set free to do these things. Another result of this solution is that, this, that the care that was given um, was just and it was practical. And the wise and the spirit-led way in which it was carried out adorned the gospel message that was being preached and made the gospel look good. This led to what we see in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. God was glorified, and his worship on earth increased. Now I want to give, uh, or leave us with a few practical ways that we as a local body can work to be more merciful. Just just three small, seemingly small ways, um, but I think... Way, a good place to start. Actually, 
give a real quick summary of what I'm going to what I preached on just now to my Sunday school class this morning, and we talked about how we can be more merciful as a church. And so this is what we came up with together. Um, I heard from some of the ladies that lead Christ Cadets that there is a great need for men, men that are dads in particular, to come and help with some of the blessings that we've been given here in this church. When I say blessings, it's some of our special needs kids that are down in that area. They they need special love. They need special care. They need special mercy shown to them. And these ladies, as they're praying and looking at the situation, they say, you know what? We need some dads to be down there, to be caring for these kiddos one-on-one and, and just helping love them and, and lead them on as best as they can understand to the gospel and also to keep order so that the other kids can hear what is being presented. So, so dads, I'm calling us out. Um, I'm going to head this one up. What I'm looking for is anywhere from 12 to 16 guys. I want two guys per week. I've talked to Pastor Ron already about this, so it's all been cleared, so we're good there. Um, when you, I'm looking for 12 to 16 dads and get on a you know, six to eight week rotation so that we're not pulled away from our families in the pews. We're not pulled away from the preaching of the Word of God too much, but so that we can be there um, showing mercy to these kids. Another um, great need that our church has um, was brought up by Karen, Karen Leaf. She said there's a real significant number of Beacon participants that would really like to attend, attend Sunday services, morning and evening. But a lot of them, just based on their situation in life, don't have the transportation to get here. Um, so what we need is people to say, you know what, I can get up a little earlier on Sunday morning, get up, get around, and go pick up some of these folks so that they can come and hear the gospel preached, so that they can be part of the body of Christ and either grow in their faith or come to faith. So that's another very practical need that we have as a church. And both of these are, are kind of related to number three. In our time of prayer this morning as a Sunday school class, one of the guys had us pray for one of his co-workers. Um, he's been talking to him about the gospel, inviting him to church, and, and the guy's really interested in coming to church. But the problem is he's a heavy smoker. And he smells like smoke, and he'd probably need to leave in the middle of serv- or in the middle of Sunday school and church to have a cigarette. And he's really concerned about how we, as a church, would treat him. How would we feel about him sliding into a seat next to us in Sunday school, smelling like smoke? What, what would we do if we saw him outside having a smoke? How would we respond to him? That that fear, which in truth, in some churches, and grounded, is grounded in reality. That fear is keeping him from coming to church. So I think it'd be wise for us as a church to just step back and to think about how we respond to people who don't fit the mold of the people that you see sitting around here. Um, sometimes we want people to just fit in a little box. Get real personal here, just kind of looking back from my upbringing and, and different things. That box, for me growing up just of who I would accept, who I would exclude from you know, just being real smiley and welcoming and shaking their hand, that included the color of somebody's skin. That included their dress not fitting within a set of parameters that I had set, that my culture had set for me. Their hair was in a certain way. Their, their customs, their mannerisms didn't fit. Maybe their, their actions didn't you know, they, they, they didn't do the things that I thought that they ought to do 
and they did the things that I really thought they ought not to do. And that's what would dictate to me whether I would welcome somebody or whether I would choose to exclude them. So we need to, to think about that. And is that in our own hearts consistent with the gospel that has saved us? We were dead in our transgressions and in our sin, but Christ in his mercy saved us. There was nothing in us to recommend us to God for our salvation. Nothing. But yeah, he saved us anyway. So what are we looking for? What is, what is our justification for looking for those types of things and others and welcoming them into our church or excluding them from our church, from our fellowship? God loves diversity. God loves people. God loves to save. So let's just have the gospel rattling around in our minds constantly as we look at people and as we welcome them in to our body. One more thing God's been nagging me on since I've been up here. I know I'm a few minutes over, but this is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. So I'm going to go off script for just a minute. And, and I kind of feel like we're, as a culture, going further and further away from loving life that God created. And I've been challenged recently to think that maybe part of the reason why we're losing that battle as Christians and as a church is because in so many ways we're not displaying mercy consistently yeah, we will, we will preach that abortion is wrong and, and more that euthanasia is wrong. But we're so inconsistent in that showing of mercy to folks like the ladies who are facing the abortion and the, the horrible lives they've lived, the fear they face. Now I'm pregnant. How do I care for this child? How do I care for myself? Um, what, are, what are my folks going to say? We, we're not good at showing mercy to those folks. Um, and the world sees that. How about immigrants? and refugees. How do we think about them? How do we think about immigrants and refugees? Are we showing mercy to them? Are we saying, stay away, keep away? The world sees that, and they say, you know what, these people are hypocrites because they don't really show mercy consistently. They pick and choose what they want to show mercy on. And I could just go on and on and on and examples like that. And I'm not saying that all of us are guilty of all those things, but I'm saying that we as a culture in America, the Christian culture, yeah, we're guilty of those things. We're guilty as charged. That charge of hypocrisy, it, it stands there. And um, if we want to see the sanctity of human life upheld, if we want to win this battle in our culture against the atrocities of abortion and, and fight back against what is coming as a tidal wave in euthanasia, then we've got to be consistent followers of Jesus Christ in every single aspect of our lives and the only way we can do that is if we have that gospel that we talked about before at the very start of the, the message constantly in our heads dictating and guiding us in everything we do in every response to every situation that we're in. That's the only thing brothers and sisters that's gonna, gonna lead us on for God's glory is if we are gospel shaped Christians and let that be the songs that we sing the words that we speak, and the prayers that we pray. And with that, let's pray. Father, a lot here in your word tonight. A lot of things that we um, need to prayerfully consider and have gospel-centered conversations about as a church. Father, I just want to pray for three specific things. I want to pray for our church. I want to pray for our community. And I want to pray for our leaders. First, Father, for us as a church in general, I pray that we would discharge 
our responsibilities well as a congregation to care for the needy in our church and for those in our wider community so that your mercy, so that your grace will be seen. That we might adorn the gospel as this church in Acts did and that your gospel may go forth. Father, I want to pray for our community. I pray that you'll give us opportunities to go out and to minister, to show your mercy, and that those who come in will hear the gospel and will be saved, and that those that are out there will see the gospel in the lives of us that are out there with them in the community, and that we will be winsome folks, and that they will be drawn to the truth, drawn to ask questions, and ultimately drawn to you for your glory. Father, I want to pray for our leaders, um, starting with the pastors and elders. Father, I, I just pray that you give them great wisdom in leading us as a congregation. There are so many things that we can't ever even begin to imagine as those who sit in the pews, things that, would, things that grab for their attention, things that demand their attention. But Father, I pray that you'll give them wisdom, that you fill them with the Spirit to say, you know what, these are important things but I've been tasked with something else, with preaching the gospel and praying for gospel results. So Father, just give them wisdom to do all that they need to do. Help us as a congregation to support them and to, to, I pray that you'll give them just wisdom to, to stay at those two things, the preaching and the praying. Give us as congregation wisdom to help them in that, to encourage them in that. And Father, I just want to pray for those who are leading in this church in mercy ministry, Father. Um, I thank you for them, too. Um, And I just pray that you would fill them with your spirit and the wisdom to do the work that you've called them to do. Help them to find that balance between um, acts of mercy and the proclamation of the gospel. Help them to marry those two things together in a way that gives you great glory and is winsome for those folks to come to worship you in spirit and in truth. And I pray all these things in your name, in the name of Jesus, the one whose resurrection gives us the strength to live our lives in a way that gives you glory. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.